0: Please remain standing and let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word this morning. Turn it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We will be reading verses 17 through 31 this morning. Last week we read this and looked at the first part of that. This morning we'll be looking at the second part of that passage this morning, but let's pick up all of this so we understand where we are as we read. Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 17, follow along with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I'm so thankful for the word that the Lord has given to us. Let's pray as we get ready to open it up this morning. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that in your great wisdom and your great love that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you for, uh, for this record of this event in the life of our Savior and we pray that you would bless us as we look into it today. We pray, God, that you would bless the one who preaches and bless we who hear, dear Lord. And we pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. So in today's passage the second part uh, beginning there in verse 23 we are reading the what's really the continuation of this larger event that we looked at begin, began to look at last week we read we reread this morning where As Jesus and his disciples are out uh, to continue on their journey, that journey which will end in the events of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as Jesus rides into that ancient city, the city of David, and is hailed there by the people uh, as the promised Messiah and King, the one, he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they started out on this leg of their journey, they were, remember, over on the east side of the Jordan River in the wilderness there. Uh, they were approached, as we read, by a man, a rich man, a young man who ran up to Jesus, knelt down before Jesus, and inquired of the Lord this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we looked at it last week, we saw that Jesus engaged in a short conversation with this man and in the midst of doing that, uh, revealing to this man his shortcomings, revealing his heart, revealing to him really his idolatry as, as demonstrated by his love for money and his property and his possessions, things that we read that this man was unable, unwilling to give up. He wasn't willing to give up his riches, not willing to give up really the priority of his riches and to trust God and to trust Christ and to follow Christ. And so we read that he went away disheartened. Disheartened, it says, and sorrowful, yet still he went away. He turned around and and walked away. It was just too harsh of a requirement that the Lord had laid on him when he told him to go and sell all that he had and give to the poor. That was, for this man, a a bridge too far. Jesus' demand was, was too much. And of course, that was exactly Jesus' purpose to reveal all of that. Even as Jesus, because Jesus, the text says, loved this man, his purpose was to reveal the condition of this man's heart and the the true devotion and the loyalty of this man which was to his stuff. We read that he went away sorrowful for, it says, because he had great possessions. Or as we said last Sunday, his great possessions had him. And we can hope, we can, we can pray that after this man left, after he had walked away, we can Hope that he changed or that God changed him. It would be wonderful someday to see him in heaven and have him say, I was the one that walked away, but afterwards God revealed himself to me powerfully and brought me to himself. Um, but this brings us to verse 23, which is where we're going to pick up this morning. As the man walked away from Jesus, I am sure that Jesus watched him walk away and was greatly grieved himself, grieved at the hardness of human heart. And Jesus then takes this opportunity to teach more to his disciples, to teach them what is really a a monumentally important Subject: An important lesson that he teaches us this morning as well if, by God's grace, we have ears to hear. And it is to that which we come this morning. And we begin by looking at the topic of an impossible salvation. An impossible salvation. That's not a very uplifting way to begin, uh, but we must begin there. And you will see why in verse 23 here, Mark, records Jesus' reaction to the man's rejection. As the man walks away in verse 23 through verse 25, we have Jesus' reaction. We read, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus begins with a statement here about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, but we're going to see that he then quickly elevates that from difficulty to impossibility. From what is difficult to what is impossible. In verse 23 he says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, just so we're clear as we begin here, what Jesus is talking about when He speaks in verse 23 and in verse 24 and in verse 25 about entering the kingdom of God, He is talking about gaining eternal life, which the rich young ruler had come and asked Him about. He's talking about being saved, we would say, in our vernacular today. He is saying that it is difficult for those who have wealth to be saved. And in fact, the question of the disciples in verse 26 shows that that is what Jesus is talking about. When they ask in response to this, then who can be saved? But what does he mean? What does Jesus mean by this statement? Is Jesus really saying that someone who has an abundance of of riches or of, of wealth of some kind is not able to be saved? Well, Not quite. What Jesus is doing here is in the light of what had just happened. Remember, this is all part of the same incident. What he's doing is in the light of the context of this situation that just took place. Jesus is focusing on that one thing here, one of many things that can intrude itself into the life of a person in such a way that it prevents one From seeking Christ and following Christ. Which is just exactly what took place with the rich young ruler. The issue with him was that he valued his possessions more than the relationship with God that he sought when he first came up to talk to Jesus. When push came to shove, the young man would rather be rich than redeemed. He was blinded by the shiny things that he possessed. And the same thing is true with millions upon millions since then through today. And that's the danger that Jesus is talking about here. And it is an absolutely real danger. And Jesus' statement here that people with wealth, people with riches, people with many possessions will only with difficulty enter the kingdom of God. As he says that, we read here that that confuses the disciples. Verse 24 says that the disciples were amazed, confounded at his words. Why is that? Well, it is because the, the prevailing opinion of the Jews at this time followed along a very specific idea from the, the Old Testament, from the people of the Old Testament, about the relationship between riches and blessing. And that view was that riches or wealth or or property, etc., were indicative of someone who was blessed by God. There were examples in the Old Testament that they would point to. Think of Abraham, immensely wealthy. Think of Job, also immensely wealthy, and then even more wealthy at the end of his story. And we could mention David or Solomon. All greatly uh, rich, immensely wealthy, wealthy individuals and all as a result of being blessed by God. But the Jews had taken all of those examples along with the legitimate teaching of some places in the Old Testament that describe physical wealth. As a blessing of God, think of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and, and other places, they had taken those things and, and sort of reduced that down to a very one-dimensional view that said that wealth was indicative of God's favor, and, and ignoring, neglecting the fact that Scripture also describes the wicked as those who are very often rich as we read in our Old Testament reading this morning. Job talks about it very much in his book, about how the the wicked are are wealthy and and do well. Psalm 73 said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and it, it confused me, it bothered me. And so when Jesus comes along here now and says, it will be difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, well, the disciples don't quite know how to process that. They were amazed at his words. But Jesus isn't done yet. If they think they're amazed now, in fact, their amazement indicates to Jesus that some further teaching is needed to them, for them. And so, in the second half of verse 24, there, he repeats it. He says in verse 24, he says, It's well, interesting. I love that he says, Children. It's the only time in Mark that he calls the disciples children. In fact, there's only two other times in all of the Gospels that he refers to them as children. Both of those are in John. But but, um, just such a a tender, caring way to address them as he is going to instruct them in their amazement. Remember also Jesus, he had looked at the rich young ruler and, and Mark says that he loved him as he looked at him. And now he looks at the disciples with his, and refers to them with this endearing term as he teaches them. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now you'll notice a slight difference between the first thing he said and the second one here. Now, he, if anything, he makes it more difficult by, in this statement, removing the reference to wealth. He just says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now we don't want to make too much of that because he goes right on then and and will refer back to the, the people with the problem with riches. And certainly we would bring that understanding from the first thing he said. But it's interesting that he says very generally how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God because as we'll see, that is true. And as he comes to verse 25 then, Jesus ratchets up again this problem, the difficulty, up to the next level. Again, moving it from difficult to impossible. Look at verse 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, Even after I was grown up, sitting in churches, I have heard, and perhaps you've you've heard as well, this explanation that is very popular, uh, given here of Jesus' words here, this statement here. See, Ancient cities, of course, were built uh, wherever possible on a, a raised area, a hill or something, to help make it more difficult to attack them and to help them see around anyone who may be coming to attack them. And as part of their security system, they would have large, high walls built around the entire city. And in those walls, in order that people could get in and out, there would be some number of gates leading into that city. Very often they would give those gates names. I guess they could have numbered them, but they gave them names. Even in uh, Jerusalem... There are several gates. There's the the Jaffa Gate and the Zion Gate and the Lion's Gate. There's the Damascus Gate. There's even a Golden Gate, but there's no bridge connected with it. Well, as it is told, there was a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem that was known as the Needle's Eye or the Eye of the Needle. That gate was very small. It was a a short gate. It was to help, again, protect uh, because at night... The main gates would be closed, and so if anyone, and that's again for security, and so if anyone wanted to come in, they would have to go through the Needle's Eye gate. And it was so small that camels, who would, were very common beasts of burden in that area at that time, they would not be able to fit through this gate unless they first had the load that they were carrying taken off, they had to have their burden removed, And even then, they would need to have, the people would have to have their camels get down on their knees. You've seen camels get down on their knees. And and then to crawl through this gate. it's a very apt illustration of the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven. So this goes, one can only do so after they have had their burden removed and then only humbly on one's knees. And only then can they enter the kingdom. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that before, but if you have, let me be the one to burst your bubble by saying that none of that is true. There was no such gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and camels are anatomically unable to crawl on their knees. They can get down on their knees, but they can't crawl on it. Sorry. Plus, in addition to that, that giving that meaning to the illustration completely destroys the point that Jesus is making by using it. He is using hyperbole here of the, of, of, at the greatest degree because he is saying just what he is saying. That it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Even the children here can understand that analogy. Think of a, a big old camel up here, and, and I hold up a needle, and I say, what do you call camels? Clyde. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Uh, Ray Stevens. Uh, Ahab the Arab. He had a camel named Clyde, right? Okay. Clyde, jump through this needle eye. You know, kids, you know that that's absurd. Even if you got behind him and pushed as hard as you could, you wouldn't be able to get him through there. And that's the point. It's impossible. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. And if you look at verse 26, you'll see by the the question that the disciples asked that they knew what Jesus was saying because they said, well, then who can be saved? So again, Jesus is saying that, that... Even more than being difficult, he's saying it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's the point. Now, it's not the riches themselves that are the problem. But it is our fallen reaction and attraction to riches and our way of allowing them to corrupt us to corrupt our thinking that is the problem. Riches are notoriously difficult things to manage uh, properly. And I don't mean in a financial way, but in a moral way. They lead us to think, For first, first of all, they lead us to think that, that it's because of us. That there's something in us. That we are the ones who get the wealth. When the fact is that everything is the Lord's. The earth and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24 says. First Chronicles 29.12 says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give to all. And as the wealth any of us have is a gift from God, we need to remember that God gives it to us as a stewardship and we are responsible to exercise whatever wealth God might give us faithfully. To do good with what we have. To use our wealth to further the kingdom of God. To help others in need to bear one another's burdens. This listen, is listen what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 in verses 17 and following. He says, as for the rich in this present age, that is physically rich people, he says, charge them not to be haughty That is the way that we are to use our wealth that the Lord has given to us. And we might pause here to remember that in the grand scheme of things, all of us sitting here today are immeasurably wealthy compared to others in the world today, compared to even kings of of past times, many of them. We are so abundantly provided for today but the issue then is not the riches themselves possessions wealth property animals whatever it may be those are morally neutral things they are not either way having a lot not having a lot they are not an indicator of the morality of someone's life or their their place before God Being rich does not necessarily mean that you are being blessed by God. It may, but it may not. And on the other side, being poor, being destitute, does not mean that you've been abandoned by God. And also, not everyone who is poor is poor because of sloth, because they are sluggards. And not everyone is rich, are rich because they have oppressed the poor. That just that connection is not proper to make in an absolute way. But the problem with riches is what Paul, again speaking to Timothy, said in 1 Timothy 6. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, he says, into a snare and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For, you know this, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus said that as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the care of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The problem with riches is that they are deceptive. They deceive. Riches promise what they cannot deliver. And we are very often too happy to chase after that illusory promise. They cannot deliver happiness, as the old saying goes. They cannot deliver peace with God or with man, contentment, salvation. Riches deceive when they cause one to assume that they are somehow better than the ones who don't have. That they're more worthy then of God's favor than others. The love of money, James 2.6 says, tempts us to dishonor other people. And the Bible warns us. Though there are places in the, the Old Testament that, that speak of, of, at times, riches being a blessing of God, and we've looked, mentioned those examples, the New Testament, by and large, focuses on the other side of that and speaks really of the danger, as we've seen in these quotes that I've just given you. It speaks of the dangers of riches. And the Bible warns us against the pride of riches and the, sin of, uh, the sense of self-sufficiency to which they tempt us. But that's true even back in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, it says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And it leads to the wonderful and wise statement of the writer of Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, verse 8, where he asks the Lord, Give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, Lest I be boastful, or lest I be full, and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Don't give me so much, that, that God, that I forget that everything is from you. That I forget that I am dependent on you for everything. Because riches are deceitful. And because riches are such a demanding taskmaster that they're, they're so dangerous as well. Remember, J.D. Rockefeller was asked once, how much is enough? To which he responded, just a little bit more. That's the deceitfulness of riches. It's a human tendency to begin to, to rest and to trust and to rely on those riches and thus to forget God. As we often point out, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. An amazing thing Jesus says here. But Jesus has something even more earth-shaking to say as the disciples, hearing what he has said so far... If we can picture it, after Jesus gives this illustration, I must be standing there with their mouths hanging open. Mark's words in verse 26 is, and they were exceedingly astonished. That's a very strong way of phrasing it. I like the King James actually gets the flavor of this. It says they were astonished out of measure or beyond measure. It was just more I guess the expression today would be, Poof. and they ask this very logical question then of Jesus in verse 26 there. They ask, then who can be saved? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? If even the rich putting ourselves in the the mindset of the disciples here, if even the rich, who in their understanding are experiencing God's favor by the fact that they're rich, if it's impossible for them to be saved, then who can? Who can be saved? And you know, with that question, God's law has done its work. With that question... God's demands have come in and have set the stage, and the unwillingness and the inability of man has brought out the dilemma. That is the problem of the human condition. That's the question of the human condition. Because this question reveals the utter futility of man's efforts, of man's possessions. This is the logical question of anyone who has properly understood his predicament before God. Let me say that again. This question, then, who can be saved? That is the logical question of anyone who properly understands his predicament before God, who understands what God requires, and we mentioned this when we looked at the law this morning, what God requires and what man is unable to deliver. And if, the disciples ask, riches actually exclude someone rather than include them, then again the question, who can be saved? And then we get Jesus' answer. And it's our second point. The God of the impossible. Because before Jesus answers... Mark records again that he looks at them. He looks at his disciples. As Jesus loved the rich man, he loves the disciples. He looked at them. He's just called them children a moment ago. And now with great gravity, Mark says that he looked at them. He considered them. Now Jesus' answer here in verse 27 begins with more bad news. In fact, positively devastating news verse 27 Jesus looked at them and said with man it is impossible there's your answer if your hope is placed in mankind if your hope is placed in riches if your hope is placed in power if your hope is placed anywhere with yourself that's your answer you know, Jeremiah said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is no. Because you and I are dead in our sin. And because of that, alienated from God. Unable to, to move toward God. Unwilling to move toward God. Not Not sick and in need of medicine. Not drowning and in need of a a life preserver. Dead. A lifeless, stinking corpse in need of resurrection. Not in need of help. In need of saving. We're dead. Outside of Christ, before... He acts. We are dead. And with as much interest in eternal life as a corpse would be. And you could not provide what God requires. We talked about it last week, didn't we? What does God require? He requires perfection. We looked at it this morning. What has God required? Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. And with you with me, with man, with the best of mankind, it is impossible. But, oh, beloved congregation this morning, these next words are among the best words in the Bible. He said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. But not with God. What you cannot do, could not do, in a trial of a million years, God can do. You have sinned. You have died spiritually. You have rebelled against God. That you could do. And you did do. And you continue to do. But what you can't do is anything about that. But God can. For, Jesus said, all things are possible with God. Now, please don't pull that last statement out of context as so many people do. It is not some sort of motivational slogan. It's not some sort of carte blanche license to do what you want to do. He doesn't say you and God can do all things. He doesn't say all things are possible with you and God by your side. He says all things are possible with God. And it was spoken in and written in this context, in this situation, to show that in regard to saving the unsavable, that only God is able to do that. God is able to do that because God can do what is too hard for man to do. Isaiah 59.1 says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. And by the way, it is not just the rich who, drawn away into trusting their possessions, need to know this truth, but every sinner who has ever drawn breath needs to know the glorious truth of this verse. Because it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for any sinner, rich or otherwise, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot save yourself. You are too weak. You are too small. You are too sinful. With you it is impossible. But not with God. God gives faith. God grants repentance. Whoever calls on Him, He will not cast out, but will receive to Himself and grant you eternal life. And if you've already received that gift here this morning, if you already know the blessed truth of God's grace, give thanks for it and honor God with your life. Whatever you have had to give up, it's been and will be well worth it. And it's with that thought then that that Mark concludes this passage. As Peter, hearing this, perhaps with a, a bit of guilt, perhaps thinking back to the encounter that just happened with the rich young ruler and with Jesus' command to him to give up everything and to follow Jesus, Peter has something to say about that. Peter always has something to say. But it's not even a question here really. It's just a statement to which Jesus responds wonderfully with a statement here finally on the blessings of sacrifice. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. See, what you were talking to the rich young ruler and and having him do to give up everything, we've done that. What about that? You know, Peter, Peter speaks the truth. He and James and John... Remember, they dropped what they were doing when they were working uh, with the fishing boats. They just, when Jesus said, follow me. They dropped it all and left and followed Jesus. Matthew had, had turned away from his morally questionable but lucrative uh, tax collecting business and followed Jesus. The other disciples, though we don't have the details of, of their calls, they likely did the same thing. Peter says about that. You know, about this need to give up everything. We've done that. What can we expect? And that too is a very pertinent question. You know, for some Christians, becoming a Christian was natural, we might say. Um, maybe even expected if you're born in a in a Christian home, especially here in America. It costs very little in terms of sacrifices to become a Christian. For others, and we know this is the case for for many in other nations and in many uh, cultures, and maybe for you this morning, becoming a follower of Christ has meant great sacrifice with actual loss of, of property, of family, of positions, of siblings and parents. What can you expect? Or maybe you are. And speaking here on a very human level, struggling with becoming a Christian because of all that you might have to give up. You know, that was the issue with the rich young ruler. That's the whole situation there. And he decided he couldn't do it. But what about you? And Peter asks, what about us? Well, Jesus responds in verse 29 through 31. Jesus said truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first In that statement there Jesus as he answers he assures his disciples there In the desert regions to the east of Judea and each of us here this morning that although even in the best of our obedience we should say as was recorded in the scripture that we are just unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty even though that's true still it is God's gracious will to give his blessings to his people. To give rewards to those whom he has redeemed. And he assures Peter, he assures you, he reassure, assures me this morning, beloved, that whatever sacrifices you have had to make to follow Christ, whether it be in regard to home or family or possessions, that God will replace it with interest. Verse 30 says a hundredfold. Starting now. Starting in this time. Starting today. Now to a lot of people, standing in pulpits today, on TV today, that means that you can expect a windfall. You can expect your bank account to grow. But let me tell you what he means. What does he mean that that you will receive? What is this, these gifts that God gives? Brothers and sisters this morning, let me tell you, many of those blessings are sitting around you in these pews this morning. The blessings of brothers and sisters in the Lord. The blessings of the church. You know, you don't refer to one another as brothers and sisters with, with no purpose. It's for a reason mothers and children, those who can help you, those who can pray for you, those who can teach you and encourage you and confront you and comfort you, help you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and, and help you to do justice and to love kindness, to walk humbly with God, those whom you can help, you can pray for, you can teach, you can encourage, you can confront, you can comfort, you can grow, you can do, you can walk, you can love. These are the blessings that he gives us are the blessings of the church. That's why the church is such a wonderful place. By the way, notice in the list in verse 30 of what you will receive with all of these different things that parallel what he has said above. There's no mention of a father. And that's because he doesn't give you a father. He becomes your father. Now, Jesus does add one other thing here in verse 30 that we might not expect. After mentioning all of these blessings of this time that we will receive, he adds with persecutions. Why does he have to do that? Even with all of these blessings, he wants to make sure that we know that the Christian life is not a perpetual cakewalk. We're blessed in all of these ways, beloved, but we are also brought into a war. A war against the world. And the world hates us. It hated Him, and it hates us who represent Him, who are united to Him, who love Him. And Jesus mentions that as well. But the focus here is that God blesses His people. That He... Replaces the years that the locust has eaten. What we lose, beloved, is nothing compared with what we gain. Now. And if, that's all, if all of that is not wonderful enough, Christian, he promises you one other thing. Verse 31, and in the age to come, I'm sorry, verse 30, into verse 30, and in the age to come, eternal life. The best of all blessings. Eternity in the the blessed and glorious presence of our Lord God and of His perfected and glorified saints. Sort of this same thing that we see here, but perfected and forever. No sin, no sickness, no struggles, no tears, no depression, no doubt, no violence. No political wrangling. Just joy and righteousness and peace and eternal bliss with God and his saints. And he reinforces all of this with the reminder that that earthly riches and even relationships and the earthly position of any person, be it a rich young ruler or be it a poor blind beggar, that that doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, verse 31 says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. As he told his disciples, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let us do that this morning. Because all who are in Christ are blessed beyond their imagination. Saved not because we can do it, because we can't but because all things are possible with God. And to that, let us say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again for the encouragement that comes through your word and for the instruction that comes through it, for the promises that come through it. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to love your word more. Help us to seek your word more. Father, we pray that your spirit would work your word in us. That we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. That we may seek to put to death those things that belong to our flesh. That we might seek to, to live according to your word as much as we may. And we pray that your spirit would help us to do so. But let us always trust only, ever, always, completely in Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. We pray these things in his name. Amen.